0: This is Preble Hall.
1: Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis.
0: And welcome to another episode of the Preble Hall Naval History Podcast. I'm Claude Barabee, the director of the U.S. Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Our guest today is Dr. Martin Waldman, who currently serves as the Director of NHHC's Histories Branch. He joined the command in 2018 after receiving his PhD from the Catholic University of America in 2017. His publications include Calmness, Courage, and Efficiency, Remembering the Battle of Leyte Gulf, Tingy House, Silent Witness to Our Navy's History, and a contribution to NHHC's upcoming volume on Navy innovation focused on joint and combined operations in the Caribbean during World War II. Martin, welcome to Preble Hall. Well,
1: thanks for having me.
0: Is this your first time here at uh, the Naval Academy?
1: Uh, No, I've been for McMullen in uh, past years.
0: Okay, so you came here for the, uh, you were probably here for the the receptions.
1: Uh, Not the receptions. Uh, Come from the hard work and, you know, leave leave when the party goes on, you know.
0: (laughs) When did you first want to be a historian?
1: I think I, probably about, 2002 2003 when i was just i was starting undergrad at william and mary i had already known i was going to major in history because i just found i had a knack for it in uh in high school though i was still at that point i was aiming to do comp sci actually weirdly enough and um you know sort of uh took to some of the classes i took some uh survey of european history for example and that was um you know sort of mind-blowing for me and uh yeah uh just I looked at the sort of, uh, how my professors had, you know, been living their lives and the joy they took from teaching, um, how much they enjoyed the work they did. And I'm like, I kind of want to do that. So, uh, of course at that point, I had no idea of the toil and struggle that went into that. Um, and you know, many, many, many years later, uh, I managed to finally get my PhD, but, uh, yeah, that was definitely the starting point, uh, for that. And, uh, you know, I have, uh, have my professors William Mary to thank and slash curse for that. And, uh, anytime the school calls me now to, uh, you know, ask for money, I just say, well, I went and got a PhD in history and it's your fault. So no, you're not getting any of my money. <laughs> um,
0: but, who's your most influential teacher or professor?
1: Uh, hard to choose. I mean, I can point to, I can give you three, uh, one was Philip Dale Eater who taught me uh, medieval history because that's, um, despite the fact I'm doing naval history now, I am a trained medievalist. Uh, the other was uh, John Donahue who did uh, ancient Greece and uh, ancient Rome. So I was also classical Civ. Uh, Meyer. So, yeah, I was far away from naval history as I could get. The one person I actually did anything modern and military history at that under was uh, Melvin Ely uh, who... Also did a lot with African-American history, and um, between the three of them, they kind of got me on this path, and uh, they uh, just made me love uh, history and made me very enthusiastic to sort of uh, explore whatever topic was out there. And, uh, you know, Dr. Deliater in particular uh, threw a copy of the Lombard Laws in front of me and said, go forth and conquer, and uh, the rest is, uh, no pun intended, history.
0: Now, we were talking about this prior to the interview. You were medievalist in uh-huh. your PhD and a period, you know, the 6th to the ninth centuries, uh, long before there was a U.S. Navy or a United States. Uh, how difficult was the transition from being a medievalist to a naval historian? and What kind of skill sets did you pick up as a medievalist in your, in your dissertation work uh, that you think was helpful to your work now at NHHC? Well... The
1: challenge is, is especially the type of history I did, which was uh, early medieval Italy, the Lombards specifically. You would think being on a peninsula, the Lombards would be a seafaring folk. But no, uh, if you Google Lombard Navy, the first thing that comes up is a color of underwear. Uh, It was a bit of a challenge, but it was more in my own head than... um, you know simply just oh lacking knowledge or something like that. I mean, you sort of as you all well know, whenever you're doing any dissertation work, you just read a lot. You read mm-hmm. read read and thankfully I had a colleague and friend who had gone through like JPME. So he recommended me some books, uh, Ian Toll's six frigates to start with, um, which is a really good introduction. I think,
0: I think that's the, the one book, uh, my midshipmen always pick when I give them recommendations, I always tell them about Ian's. I remember reviewing his book when it came out about 15, 16 years ago, maybe now.
1: Yeah. I always recommend it to anybody who's starting at our command because it, it's not just a good, you know, readable history. It's sort of, I think conceptually orients you to what the Navy does, which is more than just fighting at sea. Uh, So I read a lot. I I was actually uh, six months into a relationship with my now wife, who just so happens to be a Naval officer. Um, So apparently the Navy didn't just want to give me a job, wanted to give me a a, uh, life partner as well. Uh, And basically... uh, the analytical skills that you develop as a historian, they can translate to anything. I've had um, students at Catholic ask me before, uh, medievalist at that, like, how, how do you make the transition? It's really just you read a lot. You learn to chase down any sources that you need to. You learn to just read a document and be like, huh, that's interesting. Let me take a look. And, well, I'll freely admit when I got... Brought into NHHC. uh, I had to call my wife up and be like, uh, please come over. I'm having a near panic attack. I was like, worried, oh God, are they going to make me cut my hair? Are they going to, you know, uh, I'm not qualified to do this. I I found just even just going into something basic as the command operations reports for ships' histories, it's like you start reading and it's like, huh, there's this uh, ship off the coast of Vietnam in the 1970s. They're talking about picking up 30,000 refugees, that sounds awfully significant. Maybe I should track that down and, oh, wait, that's Operation Frequent Wind. So you, the skills you learn um, can translate to anything. I mean, you could probably go into medieval history if you wanted to as long as you picked up some of the languages and you'd still find that it's not that difficult. It's just a different type of source base. I think the one critical difference is, uh, as a medievalist is that the number of sources I'm working at with are fairly few in number. Uh, I think the number of land grants I had for southern Italy was somewhere in the neighborhood of about a 1,000. That's not even going to cover a month or two in terms of paperwork from, like, OPNAV, for mm-hmm. example. So there's, uh, you know, just way more documentation when doing military history, uh, even if you're doing age of sale History, you're going to have a heck of a lot more documentation. Whereas if you're doing early medieval, uh, I think um, the historian Luigi Schiaparelli uh, basically said it uh, most excellently. We're dealing with history and fragments. So consequently, we have a handful of documents. We have a puzzle with, you know, a thousand piece puzzle with maybe 900 pieces missing. And you sort of have to make out the picture from there. And that can be challenging, but it can also be thrilling because that sort of um, exercises your creativity and sort of teaches you to look at things um, very differently and even on a conceptual level. Uh, You know, I look at uh, the formation of identities, so drawing in a lot of anthropological research or sociological research from that, which uh, may not seem like that translates to military history, but I'm finding, and we were talking before this about flogging, that a lot of the rhetoric that's being introduced in the debate over flogging, for example, concerns American identity. So I'm finally finding you know, some resonance between what I worked on for my dissertation and what I do at NHHC. So uh, again, skills translate uh, whatever you're doing as a historian. So And then I think, too, as well, if you're coming at this from a non-military history background, don't you wrong, it's really great <laughs> if you have a military history background for this, but you maybe will just look at the world a little differently, and that in turn can... Introduce new ways of examining topics that people have not done before.
0: I think you're absolutely right. NHHC, uh, for our listeners who are not familiar with it, Naval History and Heritage Command, based in Washington, D.C., uh, has museums, it has archives, it has art gallery, has I mean, it's a pretty comprehensive organization. Uh, and there's some tremendous historians uh, there. I mean, I I think uh, Michael Crawford, who re- uh, retired a couple of years ago, longtime historian there, just put out. A wealth of information that's just so important to what we do as historians, but the general public as well. You still have incredible people like Charles Brodine, I have a tremendous respect for. Is what you've just described basically your average day as an NHHC historian? I mean, how do you go about doing your work?
1: The best resource we have at NHHC are the people that work there. Uh, whenever there's a topic or question that comes in, uh, the first thing is who do I know who knows something about that? And let me go talk to them. The second thing is a historian is like, okay, are there documents I can dig up for this at the command? Uh, certainly we have a lot of local resources as well, like NARA and library of Congress, but the command itself has some amazing archives, some which I used for this, um, book. And basically, uh, yeah, we can go to the archives. We can go to the library. Uh, I've the art gallery which you mentioned. I've used before. Uh, when I was uh, doing stuff for Tingy House, which was the CNO's house in the yard uh, because he has some of the artwork in there. So I had to draw upon their expertise. That is the single best resource that we have. And honestly, it sometimes feels like being in an academic department almost. I mean, the conversations that go on, particularly pre-COVID, it's like we'll just start talking history, uh, start talking about, uh, you know, even doing lady golf. Uh, I was just talking to my colleague, Chris Haven, who I u- owe a huge debt to, and we just bantered back and forth for like 45 minutes. And that really shaped my understanding of events and, uh, even redirected uh, my understanding a little bit. So that's sort of the average day at NHHC is just talking to colleagues, grabbing the documents, working with them, and then hopefully uh, answering whatever problem uh, that we get um, before us. And we do get a lot of interesting questions and topics before us, um, both from the general public but also directly from the fleet as well.
0: Uh, well, that's that's actually what my next question was going to be, you know, are who are your customers, your audience, your consumers for the products that you have through the histories branch?
1: Basically everybody and anybody. Uh, you know, the public we've always served, academics we've always served, uh, with the fleet. We've got historians in OpNav right now. We've got uh we've got an entire section set up for fleet history. Uh some people may have come across a dictionary of American naval fighting ships. That's
0: some of our work. Hugely important resource mm-hmm. because it lists out every ship that the Navy has ever had. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And Bob Cressman who's worked on that for thirty plus
1: years has, you know, ensured that every port of call gets mentioned, every, uh, every exercise, uh, they're incredibly detailed histories. In fact, that's where I actually got my start at NHHC. Uh, we've also been building some relationships, uh, with, uh, different commands within, um, within the Navy. We've, uh, I was just up in Newport at the Senior Enlisted Academy uh, working with those guys. They're very enthusiastic, have an amazing program up there. Uh, We've been handling a lot of inquiries from either uh, surface force Atlantic. Uh, We've have individual ships. Sometimes they want to know the history of their ship or a list of previous commanders, particularly if they're uh, decommissioning. So basically uh, for any listeners in the Navy, I just, Especially in the Navy, I should say. I, I just want to say we're here to help you. So if there is something that um, you feel we can do for you, because uh, we don't just all, you know record down the history, we don't just you know give like oh this commander served then. We also talk about the problems that are relevant today to today's Navy. Uh, we you know we'll deal with like great power competition or force structure or individual tactics, or any number of questions that you can pose to us. Uh, CNO has an initiative, uh, Get Real, Get Better, I believe. That we have done some work uh, related to those initiatives, too. Uh, I've also uh, I've worked on, the, as I mentioned earlier, I worked on the CNO's house uh, and a history of that, because there were some really interesting individuals who lived there. So the sky's kind of the limit in terms of what we can do for both the public and for the fleet. And, uh, again, we're here at NHHC to help and support the fleet.
0: There's, a, uh, you know, kind of a humorous line in Hunt for Out October uh, where Jack Ryan is responding to Captain Ramius, and, and Ramius says, you know, what kind of books? And uh, Jack Ryan says, well, I write books for the CIA, you know. Uh, you write books for Naval History and Heritage Command. Your latest is Calmness, Courage, and Efficiency, Remembering the Battle of the Leyte Gulf, which is the, the real crux of this Uh, interview. Uh, Why did you choose this, or does somebody else choose it for you?
1: Uh, It can depend. I mean, we do sometimes choose our own topics. Uh, In my case, Lady Golf, uh, it was a combination of being chosen and choosing to do so. Uh, I had done some work on Admiral Kincaid, of the 7th Fleet uh, in relation to the Dictionary of American Naval Fighting Ships. And we were coming up on the 75th anniversary of Lady Golf, and we wanted a piece for our website, uh, which incidentally, that's a very good resource for anybody who's uh, looking up certain questions. And so I was interested in me posting Something I, I'd also been looking at the Jesse Oldendorf uh, autobiography, which is actually at the Nimitz Library here, and mm-hmm. I was thinking of me putting up some passages from that. And then I was asked, well, we actually need a historical summary up on the website, something that's you know scholarly, very accurate. And so I was like, okay, I'll do this. And uh, I was told maybe do like five, ten pages, and. Yeah, I, I kind of missed the mark on that because it ended up being something like forty to fifty. Uh, kind of hard to compress down uh, four separate major engagements into uh, into you know one five-page summary. So I worked on that, got it up on the website, and uh, did some associate events uh, with that, and then was asked, "Do you want to turn this into a book? Uh, something for?" Print that could easily be distributed out. And uh, I said yes. And obviously, we're a little ways away from the 75th anniversary of Lady, so you can tell that there's been a number of other things that cropped up in between. But I finally got back around to this, and uh, the end result is uh, this uh, lovely little uh, booklet that's sitting before you. You know,
0: there have been other books written about Leyte Gulf. You know, what comes to mind immediately is Tom Cutler's book that came out almost 30 years ago now and uh-huh. tom is tom was our professor at naval war college for so many of us uh just an incredible individual uh, and how do you approach something as large as the battle of Leyte gulf what's the approach you take how, what are the sources that you you choose i mean i, mean, I was looking through your bibliography and i want to talk about a couple of those but when First, talk about the significance of Leyte Gulf in terms of U.S. naval history, and also, what's the guide? What were the guideposts that you had for doing this work?
1: Okay, so, Leyte Gulf is it's known as one of the largest battles, um, naval battles in history. Uh, I won't say the largest because that gets us into debates over whether it's like bigger than Salamis or any number of things. But certainly in terms of tonnage and square miles, it's definitely the largest. And it's used as a case study in military education. Uh, Anybody taking the JPME?
0: Uh, I joined professional military education mm -hmm. for folks who are not familiar with it and had the pleasure of going through one of those programs. Yep.
1: Uh, The JPME uses it as a, Case study, the JMO, uh,
0: military joint maritime operations, Mm -hmm. right.
1: Also uses it, Hmm. uh, because it covers so many facets of naval warfare. There's so many interesting questions that arise from it. So it's very valuable from a military education standpoint. And certainly when we write products at NHHC, again, it's always with the Navy in the forefront, uh, of our minds. If I have one regret about this is I almost wish I had put like discussion questions or something in each chapter because basically we always think in terms of what are the lessons you can learn from this and try to direct it at that audience more so than a you know general audience and to be clear uh, Cutler's book which I make heavy use of is great Uh, so is uh, Milan Vigo's uh, more recent book on Lady as well. Uh, There are a number of fine authors who've written on it so in terms of making you know the most novel contribution in the world i can't necessarily claim this but what i can say is it's short enough that any person in the navy can pick this up and read it fairly quickly Mm -hmm. and sort of get a very uh directed approach to each engagement like what are the sort of key points that can be drawn from that and how does this maybe apply to their own um duties as well and i'll actually note so Calmness, Courage, and Efficiency, uh, the title. It's part of that very famous uh, quote where uh, Captain of the Samuel B. Roberts, um, uh, Lieutenant Commander Copeland, he, you know, said in his after-action report, you know, that uh, basically they operate with such calmness, courage, and uh, efficiency that no higher honor can be uh, thought than to have commanded such men. And we... I always tend to focus on the no higher honor part, but the calmness, courage, and efficiency part for me is much more sort of in line with what everybody in today's Navy um, needs to know and needs to have sort of just deeply embedded. And and that that. goes
0: from flag officer down to E1, everybody.
1: Exactly. Whether you're, you know, working admin or you're on the flight deck, it's calling this the courage and efficiency, there are so many examples of it in today's Navy, whereas, you know, not everybody's going to be in this, you know, horrific battle to the death from which, you know, no uh, there's no odds of survival whatsoever. And if you look at some of the after-action reports, what struck me most as I was reading through them was that Some of the commanders were like, this is almost like a day at the office or like a training exercise insofar as we're just moving at peak efficiency. Guys who weren't even in combat at that point, had no experience, were able to just go about their business as they had been trained to do. And that, to me, is the most important lesson from Lady and the most interesting aspect of Lady Golf is just, its again, it's another day at the office in a way for some people, not all obviously, but for some, it's it's the biggest engagement in, or one of the biggest engagements in naval history, and yet they're just going about their business. And there's lessons to be learned from
0: that for today's Navy. Samuel Elliott Morrison, the great naval historian of the 20th century, was a lieutenant commander, uh, I think, or commander of reserves during World War II. FDR had given him his commission yep. uh, basically to write uh, naval mm-hmm. history, and he comes out with this multi-volume. I don't know if, I can't remember if it's 13 or 14 volumes because I think I'm missing a couple in my collection. But his notes are, I believe they're still at NHHC. At least 20 years ago when I was going through them, yep. they were. Ha, those who haven't transferred to na, uh, National Archives, have they? What are some, uh, whether it was Morrison's original notes or something else, what are some of the sources that were unique at NHHC that helped you write or would help you know, the average sailor or the general public understand late Gulf in a way they wouldn't normally.
1: So Morrison's notes are a good one, and anybody who works in World War II, I would highly, highly recommend looking at those because not only does he have a lot of original documentation, some of which I sort of question why he has it in the first place because he maybe shouldn't have had it, but uh, he also got commentary from a lot of the participants in these engagements, uh, on, you know, whatever volume he was working on. So consequently you kind of get the unvarnished thoughts of some of the volumes, uh, you know, the participants at lady golf. So he'll get commentary from either like Halsey or Kincaid or somebody like that. And sometimes, uh, as, sort of um, prim and proper as these guys could be in public, uh, in those commentaries, uh, they can get pretty harsh and pretty brutal with each other, or sometimes brutal with Morrison as well. And that gives you insight that you won't get in official documents. Uh, My personal favorite from the uh, collections is uh, Thomas Kincaid's papers because he has a lot of the dispatches from lady, he also, uh, concerning the controversy between him and Halsey, even though Kincaid sort of kept a little more muted about it in public,
0: can you can you summarize the or discuss the that particular controversy?
1: So basically, um, after Halsey thought he had uh, forced the Center Force uh, under Admiral Curita to retreat, he discovered there were a force of carriers uh, north of his possession. Ostensibly, Halsey was there to cover the landings, uh, which Seventh Fleet was uh, undertaking uh, in coordination with General MacArthur's forces. And uh, Halsey faced a choice of whether to guard the San Bernardino Strait, which would have provided access to Lady Golf, or to go north and pursue the carriers. Halsey went north, uh, contrary to basically the expectations of everybody. That's Boy. how the center force got through. That's where the heroics of Taffy Three come into play. And needless to say, Admiral King or Admiral Kincaid, I should say, was uh not particularly thrilled with halsey's decision making as were a number of uh, other naval officers.
0: Why did Halsey do
1: that uh, That is the uh million dollar question uh, He never
0: answered it in any of the letters, say with e. b. Potter, the naval historian here, he did, or he, anybody else he
1: He has a couple explanations they they sort of rotate um First off, there's the question of concentration of forces. Uh, It was contrary to doctrine at the time to divide up your forces. So he could have left a group under Admiral Willis Lee at the strait, mainly comprised of battleships, but doing so would have meant dividing up his forces. So that's one reason that uh, is cited. Of course, uh, there was the issue at Philippine Sea where Spruance had come under some censure for not pursuing the Japanese uh, carriers because he was guarding the beachhead, and Halsey was mindful of that. So in Halsey's uh, sort of defense on that, he wanted to go more on the offense. Admiral Nimitz had also added a caveat into Halsey's orders saying, you know, if opportunity exists to uh, go after the Japanese fleet, take it. And... Uh, Nimitz subsequently reminded Halsey your primary objective is to guard Seventh Fleet and the amphibious assault, but Halsey being Halsey sort of latched onto that caveat, and so consequently when Nimitz heard what Halsey did and he was dining with his son, his son kind of mentioned, uh, you know, it's actually your fault he did this, and Nimitz kind of just gave him the, well, like, that's just your opinion, man. Um, Halsey also had... um, he had something of a romanticized mentality to a degree. To be clear, Halsey, even though he has the nickname "Bull Halsey, and we always think of him as this hard-charging um, admiral, it's he was actually on the cutting edge for many years with the Navy. I mean, he started out in destroyers. He latched on to naval aviation later on in life. Uh, and early on in the war, uh, his sort of... Offensive mindset was very important for morale and sort of puncturing this myth of Japanese invincibility But as the war sort of took a turn towards more support oriented operations, he didn't do quite so well and He was really really itching to get after the Japanese fleet in open seas. I mean he'd also missed midway with uh, What I believe is dermatitis at the time so he had missed his opportunity there and So he sees there's a force of carriers to the north, and he thinks to himself, "Okay, this is an imminent threat. Uh, Mind you, the carriers had only actually had like 110 aircraft because, ironically, Halsey had managed to decimate a lot of the uh, Japanese air forces uh, a couple weeks earlier uh, off of Formosa. So this is how he justifies it to himself, is that, all right, this is a threat need to go north. The carriers are the most important thing, even though at this point in the war carriers and Spruance makes this observation. Carriers aren't as important because a lot of the aircraft is coming from land at this point. But this is Halsey's logic. He's sticking to it. The final thing with Halsey is just, uh, and he writes this in his own autobiography, in some ways damns himself by saying this, is like this is an opportunity he'd been looking forward to since the being a cadet at the academy he he wanted to uh, he wanted to go head to head with another fleet and so uh, he was really really angry when he turned back uh, because he missed that opportunity
0: and I, I just want to make a quick note because some of our listeners may say that you got you just got something wrong because you said Halsey was a cadet yeah, and just on. to let let our cadet, <laughs> let, let our listeners know that uh, for the first 70 80 years of the naval academy they were naval academy cadets not midshipmen oh. so you know the, you were absolutely correct in saying mm-hmm. that. So I, I i can just imagine somebody saying hey wait a minute i think you got that wrong so, no you you got that absolutely correct yeah, I they were that known I was as saying that too, but, uh. <laughs> uh no you were absolutely correct um, there's you know there are dad jokes and then there are naval historian jokes and you know one of us might say hey i thought i was supposed to meet you at the coffee shop at 9:30 the world wonders you know can you explain what impact there was a certain message that Halsey received after uh-huh. this and what impact it had on Halsey?
1: Halsey uh when he's going northwards uh he's getting more and more radio traffic uh from Admiral Kincaid about where is Task Force 34 the one that was supposedly going to be left at the San Bernardino, you know, straight under uh uh Willis Lee and Halsey is just kind of ignoring it and brushing it off. Uh, at one point, Kincaid's so desperate he actually goes on an open channel and you know basically said, "Where's Lee? Send Lee." And Admiral Nimitz is getting very concerned at this point. Uh, Admiral Leahy as well. Uh, they're all like expecting Halsey to be at the straight or have somebody at the straight. And Halsey had actually said like. And this is where for especially uh, naval listeners, communication is very important and you need to be very exact in the language you use. Halsey had actually said like, you know, on my order, Task Force 34 will be formed. So they assumed he was gonna do it. No, he made it, he thought it was contingent. And then he said he's going north with three other task forces. And they assumed, okay, only three are going north. Nope, it's four because Halsey's including himself there, but that's where the confusion comes into play. So at this point, uh, Admiral Nimitz, uh, who generally is very hands-off when it comes to engagements, he he doesn't want to interfere, but he has him send a message, um, and it has, uh, to confuse confuse the Japanese, uh, it has some padding on each end so that you know, in terms of decoding it, it'll take longer. And at the end of it, it says, you know, it's where is Task Force 34? The world wonders. That was supposed to be excised uh, when Halsey's uh, crew got it. They failed to do that. And, you know, the world wonders is sort of, um, it's a reference to, or can be seen as a reference to the Charge of the Light Brigade. So as soon as Halsey reads this, he is, shall we say, not very happy. Uh he throws his hat down on the uh <laughs> throws his hat down on the floor. Uh I think he says something along the lines of who the hell does Chester think he is for sending me a message like that. Um Robert Carney, who's his chief of staff, like just basically has to tell him to get a hold of himself and they have to go into conference in Halsey's bunk, because I think Halsey's like spitting mad over this. Uh, it's not uh, not a happy moment for Halsey. And I think he actually pursued whoever uh, wired that transmission over and asked Nimitz to f- find out the person who put that little tagline at the end. Uh, and. Supposedly the person got punished. I've never actually confirmed that, but, yeah, Halsey, not very happy about that particular transmission.
0: You know, there were so many quotes uh, from your book that I was uh, going through. Uh, Rear Admiral, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, Rear Admiral Toshihara Inoguchi, uh, who was the commanding officer of, or at least his flagship was, the Musashi. And it it gives you a real sense. He says, you know, that he allegedly regretted, and this is short, shortly before the Musashi goes down after, I don't know, oh. 20 or 30 bombs and torpedoes had hit it, of having placed so much faith in big, uh, big guns and big ships. Uh, but can you tell us about the scope? I mean, the Musashi was one of the two largest carriers ever built, along the, with the Yamato, both of them were part of Leyte Gulf um, operations. Uh, but give listeners a sense of how many ships and the, and the number of people and the the geography – uh, regarding the Battle of Leyte Gulf.: Okay. Um,
1: so basically with Lady Gulf and again, this goes back to the question of is it the largest naval engagement in yeah. history, but to give you a sense of the scope. So uh, personnel-wise, 200,000. Uh, number of ships fighting, 282. There's four separate engagements, five if you want to count Palawan Passage, which is in the lead-up to it. And it's across a hundred thousand square miles of ocean, uh, and this is sort of the decisive engagement that both fleets had sought since the beginning of the war. It's that Mahanian concept of you get all your fleets together and you battle it out.
0: Would you say that? And now again, we you know historians will always argue. You know, what's the largest battle in naval history? As you just pointed out, but. Uh, why would Leyte Gulf be more important in in terms of winning the Pacific overall than, say, Midway? What's the What's the real significance of Leyte Gulf?
1: I wouldn't call it more important, but it is sort of the culmination of everything that started at Pearl Harbor. Uh, it basically uh, puts an end to Japanese uh, hopes in the Pacific of either. Uh, either a colonial empire or also it's pretty much the end of the Japanese fleet. They only really sortie, you know, one more time after this. Uh, so we start off with the Japanese dominant in the Pacific and then at Lady Golf, uh, which mind you they were already back on their heels pretty far at this point, but at Lady Golf uh, this is really the end for them. Uh, this was their best shot to maybe not turn the tide of the war completely, but at least secure perhaps better terms in the ultimate peace treaty. But uh, they end up, for the most part, getting heavily decimated uh, in the different engagements. And ironically, the uh, last, uh, sh- uh, last carriers that had been responsible for uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor get sunk at uh, the Battle of uh, Cape Angano. So again, it's not <clears throat> the most important battle in uh, World War II by any stretch of the imagination, but again, it's the culmination of everything the Navy has learned and done up to this point. Uh,
0: In your research, do you think, is it your assessment, that um, Leyte Gulf was a foregone conclusion that the United States would win uh, given its material uh, advantages that had gained by the war, the pilots that had been trained versus the Japanese who had lost so many experienced officers by then. Uh, certainly, the the changes in uh, torpedo technology. Uh, we had finally, by nineteen uh, excuse me, 19, yeah, nineteen forty four, uh, overcome the earlier problems with our torpedoes. Do you think it just was supposed to happen that way, or, or do you think that there were? Events within the battle that might have turned the tide, and and I really want to be careful. I know uh, we don't like to be armchair historians, but sometimes you look at the at two sides and you know, look, eventually, you know, the Persians are going to overcome, you know, a few hundred Spartans. I mean, that's that's. I don't think there's anything they could have done, uh, the Spartans could have done. But what do you what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think there was a strong confidence that if the Japanese fleet. Uh, sortied against uh, both the 3rd and 7th fleets that they'd be able to take them uh, just because of the advantage in terms of number of ships and uh, also manpower and aircraft, uh, the aircraft probably being the most critical because the Japanese had uh, not only lost a lot of aircraft by this point, they'd also lost some of their best aviators and most experienced aviators and also uh, crews as well. Where things could have turned is where, at least in Admiral Kincaid's view, the plan uh, went awry, and that's with Halsey going north. Um, From Admiral Kincaid's standpoint, his, you know, defense of why perhaps he hadn't been protecting the Strait is that he thought the plan was very well understood that Halsey would be guarding the Strait. So consequently, the Japanese Center Force, which at this point had been pummeled pretty good um, at Subutian Sea, And Halsey thought they were retreating, but in reality, it had been a fake-out. So they had actually um, turned back, gone through the strait in the middle of the night, and uh, the first indication that Kincaid actually had that Halsey was not, in fact, guarding the strait was uh, Taffy III uh, seeing the pagoda mass of the Japanese ships at that point. And that's where you get that desperate struggle off Samar. Uh, between the jeep carriers and destroyers and destroyer escorts of Taffy-3 versus, uh, you know, a number of battleships and cruisers. And uh, it's at this point where you could argue the battle might have turned. Now, would it have turned the tide of the war entirely? Probably not, given the material advantages uh, the U.S. had. I mean, we we're cranking out, I forget how many ships a day, but uh, rather ridiculous number. But that said... It would have been, um, and again, I hate engaging in what-if history, but if not for the heroics of Taffy Three, and if not for convincing Admiral Curita it was time to turn back, uh would have been a disaster for the invasion of the Philippines. And this was also coming ahead of the 1944 election. So who knows what would have happened with FDR's uh, reelection efforts if Suddenly you have mm-hmm. a disastrous loss going on. And since war is always an expression of politics, uh, who knows what direction things might have taken at that point.
0: We, you mentioned the, the incredible heroics uh, during this battle. And, and probably certainly uh, one of the great uh, naval heroes is Ernest Evans, uh, commanding officer of the USS Johnston um, and we really I think of him because we just recently here at the Naval Academy Museum accepted a bust uh, of Ernest Evans. Uh, can you tell us about what his ship did and what is so heroic about what he did mm-hmm.
1: USS Johnston which Evans commanded uh, had only been commissioned I believe in 1943 and Evans had basically... Uh, at the commissioning ceremony uh, quoted John Paul Jones and saying, I intend to go into harm's way with this ship because it's going to be a fighting ship. And his crew knew it because Evans had that sort of steely demeanor that uh, won a lot of loyalty from his crew. And he demanded much of them but also gave much to them. And so when they sight the pagoda mass of the Japanese center force, Basically, before the orders that even given Evans and Johnson's race forward because Taffy three was again comprised of destroyers destroyer escorts and um, escort carriers uh, which are uh, Much smaller than the fast attack carriers that we think of and protecting those carriers was paramount for the destroyers so Johnston rushes forward and basically goes toe-to-toe and slugs it out with the center force, as do a number of other ships from Hull, Heerman, uh, countless others. Just basically it's their own charge of the Light Brigade uh, in this instance. And uh, they actually do some damage. Uh, They take a lot of damage in turn. Evans actually loses a couple fingers and even has his shirt blown off. Uh, The last... Uh, Image which uh, Lieutenant Commander Copeland remembers of Evans is as he's steaming forward for one more charge because uh, basically uh, at this point the Japanese Center Force is preparing to uh, launch a spread of torpedoes uh, at the escort carriers and uh, is Evans and Johnson charging forward with Evans on the fantail, you know, waving to him, just bare-chested and, you know, ready to go. Uh, And... The thing you have to remember with the Japanese at this point is they'd already been absolutely slammed at Sabuian Sea. They lost, uh, they lost Musashi. And even before that Palawan passage, uh, the submarines Darter and Dace had actually uh, pounded and taken out, uh, I believe, uh, Admiral Curita's uh, flagship which sent him into the drink for a while, Mm -hmm. and so he had been swimming. So he's absolutely exhausted at this point. And then suddenly you think, oh, you've got an easy in into Lady Golf, and the determined defenders of Taffy 3 are just lighting you up and fighting hard. Uh, Again, you have destroyers going up against battleships uh, in this instance, and you have squalls and other things going on, and this is when fatigue sets in. And you know, they even think that they were fighting fast attack carriers because so many planes were hitting them at once. And it was really the escort carriers' small uh, complements of planes. It wasn't like anything from Leyte or any of the fa- or anything from 3rd Fleet. And so they're just getting hit on all sides and don't really know what they're looking at. And supposedly when Admiral Kincaid's uh, open-channel message about, you know, where is Lee, send Lee hits... Um, you a later comment, he's like, I don't think you guys realize that we, you know, could actually speak English. So he thought it was, he thought it was a trick. And so he's, like, worried that there's going to be another force coming to the north or something from the south. He had also found out at Surigao Strait that uh, Nishimura's uh, uh, group had been smashed by old Oldendorf's uh, battleships. And so, just a lot of confusion and stress at this point and so he ultimately makes the decision to turn back. Uh, I think he argues that oh I'm just pursuing another fleet to the north. No, he's kind of hightailing it out of the San Bernardino Strait at this point. And that's because you had the determination and the resilience of the crews of Taffy 3 and just going toe to toe with the Japanese center force at this point.
0: It was another quote that you had in this book. And, you know, Arlie Burke, very famous admiral, you know, entire class of destroyers named after him. And he writes, uh, or he says of Admiral Mitcher, if I ever loved any man, it was Admiral Mitcher. Why did he say that?
1: Arlie Burke and Admiral Mitcher were sort of the classic odd couple, seemingly mismatched at first, who, after a lot of initial tensions, really gelled together uh Burke uh had you know he'd famous by this point earned uh you know his famous sobriquet I believe it was 31 not Burke uh but at that point they determined that you know depending on who was uh in command whether it was an aviator or surface officer their chief of staff needed to be from the opposite community just so that they could work better together so uh Burke became Mitcher's chief of staff. Mitcher was not happy about this and really gave him the cold shoulder uh, early on. I think what finally won Mitcher over was Burke was just absolutely determined to win him over. He studied up everything he could. And there was one incident, as I recall Burke recounting, where there were some Japanese aircraft incoming and nobody on the bridge was doing anything, and finally Burke took charge and you know, gave the orders, and Mitcher was like, well, it's about time. And after that, uh, you know, Burke and Mitcher had a really strong relationship. And I think with Burke, he really respected the fact that Mitcher held everybody accountable because even though Mitcher wanted to give everybody a fair shake, he also knew that if somebody made a mistake, people would die. And so for Burke, that's something that he really came to respect about Mitcher. And I think, in turn, Mitcher just, uh, you know, found in Burke a sort of kindred spirit in terms of how they fought. And after the war was over, I mean, Mitcher, you know, wanted uh, Burke wherever he went. And uh, initially, I think, uh, I want to say Mitcher went to the Bureau of Aeronautics uh, afterwards Uh and Mitch Burke was like, no, I'm not an aviator. I can't do this. But if you ever go out to sea again, I will happily go with you. And as soon as Mitchell went back out to sea, Burke was there. And sadly, their time was cut short because Mitcher died uh, not long after the war. But that being said, uh, I think he had a real impact on Burke that, you know, continued well into Burke's time uh, as CNO.
0: Martin, you went through a lot of documents in doing the research for this what was the, what were, you know, I always ask, the, especially the Ph.D. Uh, students who come in for an interview, what was that aha moment? I mean, you're, you're going through hundreds, if not thousands, of, you know, dusty old papers or faded microfilm. Mm. What were the nuggets that you found that you just said, what, that just kind of blew your mind? And then you said, this has to be in here, or I have to know more about this?
1: Well, one thing that didn't make it in... Uh Again, I referenced earlier Admiral Kincaid's papers and the controversy with Halsey. And Kincaid had a lot of comments about what Halsey did. Uh Halsey very infamously wrote uh an article for the Saturday, a series of articles for Saturday Evening Post recounting his wartime experiences, which eventually became his autobiography. And the one on Lady Halsey basically blamed Kincaid for the fiasco. And you actually have at the NHHC archives a copy in Kincaid's paper of that with typewritten little notes stapled to individual passages within that article by Kincaid just basically saying, no, this didn't happen this way. This is idiotic and ridiculous. Another um, author wanted Kincaid to sort of review his work on Lady. Kincaid gave him that, and the author was, like, so impressed. He's like, oh, can I use this as a forward? Kincaid's like, of course— The guy had to come back to Kincaid and be like, "Um, my publisher said we can't use this because Halsey might sue us for libel. Uh, Because Kincaid's comments were so ferocious. I mean, he basically condemned uh, Halsey as a wannabe Farragut type and the like. And uh, Kincaid's own autobiography, which has never been published, he only partially finished it. It's not actually very good. But that said, you get a little bit of his philosophy about how to fight, and he he has one great quote about, um, you know, these are no longer engagements between a single ship or individual fleets. They're events of worldwide importance, and decision-making has to be um, cold-blooded, selfless and unafraid. Uh, So Kincaid's papers have a lot of interesting stuff. Oldendorf's um, autobiography, uh, Rear Admiral Jesse Oldendorf. uh, he has a autobiography which has never been published in full form. And he was writing actually before the war ended, uh, while he was recuperating, uh, a journalist uh, named Hawthorne Daniel um, basically uh, came to him and said, I want to get your uh, get your experiences. And so they wrote him down. And so you get like maybe seven eight months after surgao straight Oldendorf's unvarnished thoughts and basically Oldendorf's kind of blown away with the fact that the japanese southern forces is coming in a straight column towards his battle line uh crossing the team it's like this is stuff we learned at a war college we never actually expect to have this opportunity in any engagement uh, and he has a lot of interesting little comments and thoughts like that uh, littered throughout I, th- I think for me like there are cool documents or there's you know battle plans or whatever but it's always those personal things for me that kind of resonate the most when you're actually getting the unvarnished thoughts of the participants within the battle and that's again where you get to the um get to the after action reports and you get um guys basically saying like this is almost like we're doing a routine drill uh Although I will also note there is one other fun one. Uh, Roland Smoot, who's at Suragao Strait, has, uh, and he made this made it into its AAR, and it was so memorable that he even could recount it from memory, but he, he talks about um, the battleships firing on the Japanese Southern Force at Surgau Strait, and it's like uh, he, he compares the tracers to, like, the arc of little railways and railway cars going up over the horizon as they're uh, striking the uh Japanese uh, southern force and I don't think the Japanese saw it that way but it was it was so beautiful and so poetic a way to describe it Uh, so just a lot of little things like that as I go through the documents is uh, you get these little moments of poetry little moments of humanity uh, creeping in and that to me is sort of what you can it's the stuff that if you're in the fleet or something like that yes there are the you know, lessons about operational planning in here, but it's also the experiences of those who've come before you and what they thought and felt during these engagements that I think if you take away nothing else from this, it's uh, those the, sorts of sentiments. The human factor.
0: Mm-hmm. Our guest for this episode has been Dr. Martin Waldman, who currently serves as the Deputy Branch, Deputy Director of Naval History and Heritage Command's Histories Branch uh, his latest book is Calmness, Courage, and Efficiency, Remembering the Battle of Leyte Gulf, Martin. Thanks for coming over. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you very much.
0: And thanks for listening to another episode of the Pearl Hall Naval History Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please leave feedback on whatever platform you're listening to it. And have a great day.
1: Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.